Welcome to the Shockwave Therapy Podcast. My name is James Woolwich, Osteopath and Clinical Director at the Abbey Pills Clinic in Suffolk. We will be trying to demystify the concept of shockwave treatment whilst bringing together experts in their field to discuss the latest research. If you are deciding on whether to add this modality into your clinic or just improve the way you deliver it, then we hope this is the podcast for you. Today we'll be talking to Benoit Matthew, an extended scope physiotherapist specialising in lower extremity injuries. Uh, he splits his time between NHS practice at the Croydon University Hospital and in private practice at Mayfair. He teaches across the globe uh, in tendinopathies in particular with particular reference to groin pathologies and hip pathologies. Um, he's been teaching over 2,000 participants on CPD courses over the last eight years using Shockwave for the last seven years. So he's very experienced in that area. Today, we're hoping we can he can shed some light upon greater trochanteric pain syndrome in particular, amongst other tendinopathies around the hip. So welcome, Ben. Um, thanks for joining us this evening. Um, we're gonna try and focus as much as possible today um, talking about your particular interest, which is on hip pathology, with particular reference for Shockwave and greater trochanteric pain syndrome. So for, for those listeners out there that haven't heard of you, um, can you just give us a bit of a roundup of your career so far and how, how you got into shockwave and tendon disorders? Uh, thanks, James, for inviting me on the shockwave podcast. Um, and I've been working as a therapist for the last 20 years. Currently, it's a bit of a mixture of various roles. So I work part-time in the NHS um, as an advanced practice physio where predominantly I deal with rural and clinics, so working with consultants. Um, I also do uh, private work, which is exclusively hips and runners. So like yesterday on my hips, on my uh, Mayfair day, I had about 12 hip patients, mixture of uh, intra-articular, extra-articular patients. Um, I've been using Shockwave for the last seven years and been teaching for the last three years. So uh, for lower level, especially with my hips and knees, it's sort of a very valuable adjunct, which pretty much I use it every week. Um, when I started, like with most, as most therapists do, uh, I was just focusing on the Achilles and plantar fasciitis, but over the years I've sort of moved into other areas which I found really useful. Okay, all right. And so your 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 most of your career is spent split now between NHS at what's the hospital you work at, Ben? Yeah, I work currently. I work at Croydon uh, University Hospital, and then I have uh, work in the Mayfair Hotel, uh, which is within the hotel. So we've got a gym. Uh, and also, uh, you know, along with my uh, business colleague, Len. So we've got a few therapists as well. So it's predominantly, it's exclusively like a lower limb specialist clinic. So I only treat, I've been only been treating lower limb for the last four to five years. So uh, predominantly hips, that sort of is what I'm focusing on. Okay. And what kind of populations are we talking about? You, you treat lots of sports people? Do you treat sedentary people? Or is it a general mix because you're in the NHS yeah. and private? Yeah. So NHS, NHS, I don't really, uh, it's more like a triagonal. It's more like an ESP role. With my clinical role, I would say it's predominantly an active recreational population. Uh, I've stopped working with uh, semi-professional football and other sports. So it's predominantly like you're a typical city goer, you know, works 40, 50 hours, but still thinks he's an athlete, you know, puts 15 to 20 hours, you're overusing injuries. So I don't really see much of, uh, I hardly see any chronic pain uh, cases. And because I've not, treated fine for a long time um you know I'm, I'm not involved in that area so predominantly it's like your runners you know your um semi-professional you know a uh, bit of footballers hockey and all that a mixture of um uh, recreational athletic population so anywhere from 16 to 45 
that's sort of is the typical age group I see. Okay, fine. Um, just if you can, with your your experience in in hip pathology, because this 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 yeah. will be listened to as I know by a mixture of professionals, podiatrists, osteopaths, chiropractors, and so forth that are interested yeah. in shockwave. Can you yeah. just give us a quick yeah. roundup of what GTPS is? Yeah, so I think uh, um, whenever you heard the word syndrome, we, you can be sure that we don't understand it well, like, you know, <laughs> subacromial pain syndrome. So it's a nice way of saying, like, we really don't know what's happening. Uh, uh, but GTPS, I think it's a better word rather than saying trochanic bursitis or gluteal tendinopathy. Because um, just to give an example, like, if you if you scan uh, 100 people with uh, uh, GTPS, um, uh, about 60 will have pathology on scan. 40, you will, you will have a normal scan, but still have pain. So there's a sort of a lack of uh, link between uh, imaging and pathology. So we can see it's a spectrum of, uh, we think it's mainly a tendon related issue, just like the shoulder. So main, the two tendons is uh, glute med and glute, uh, you know, med and glute minimus. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the, the bursa the involvement is, is only around five to 10%. And we think bursas, you know, bursa is a victim to tendon issue. So we don't really believe that it's the primary driver, you know, like yes. I still get referrals from a GP I still get reference from GP saying a trochanteric bursitis, can you inject or on that? We think it's more like a coexisting pathology, like, like for example, like in the shoulder or uh, the insertion Achilles uh, retrocalcinal bursa. So I don't really uh, look at the bursa in isolation. So I think the main factor is the tendon and uh, with any uh, lower limb tendinopathy, it sort of follows the same uh, protocol and it has uh, a slightly higher predisposition to women. Uh, yeah. Sort of the ratio is four is to four is to one, and the stat is the stat is quite scary. It's like at least twenty to twenty five percent of women after the age of forty will have uh, you know some form of uh, GDPS uh, at least uh, once in their life. So it's very extremely common condition, and uh, um, you know and so, you know I can say this because I work in both the sides. It's very poorly managed in many areas, especially uh, you know within the NHS and many places where people rush into multiple injections which uh, lead to poor outcomes in the long term so sure. um although it's com although it's common it doesn't mean it's well managed and do you do you think i mean certainly for me uh, as training as an osteopath i think that if we went back yeah. 15 20 years ago um if yeah. you had lateral hip pain it was likely yes. due to some well your 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 spine's out or your pelvis is out and it's probably mm. referred pain from your spine going mm. to the side of the hip so actually it's you know being involved yeah. in shockwave and tendon disorders as I have for the last five years, it's, it's been a real eye-opener as to how mm. common it is as a condition. Um, I just want to go back to yes. what you said about that, that, you know, that, that, that it's slightly women more than men. Do you, is your take on that, because mm. I know that some of the things underpinning uh, tendinopathies are metabolic, hormonal, as well as mechanical. Do you see yeah. there being a, a, those two things in place for GTPS, or do you see it more as a mechanical issue about pelvic girth and Q angles and so forth? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm more into the hormonal camp because I think we know that, you know, predominantly I see the patients in a peri or a, you know, postmenopausal women. And we know that there's a drop in estrogen, which is extremely important for tendon metabolism. You know, it is very important for collagen turnover. So I think the key driver, you know, in my opinion from, and also looking at the literature is metabolic and also change in the sex hormones. So that sort of tips in. And also BMI is a big factor. So it's not a surprise you know, if you look at the stats, an average person with GTPS, GTPS usually has a large BMI. Sure. Uh, obviously, the, mecha the mechanical factors are important, like VK protectors, you know, large Q angle. Uh, and uh, women have that slight 
mechanical disadvantage because the white pelvis puts the abductors into more strain. And if you want to go really into detail, especially a hip person, there is there are a few variations in the hip, uh, such as called coxa vara, where you have an angle of the hip which can put more strain. So I think those factors are important. But I think what tips people is the hormonal factors, uh, combination of weight gain and lack of activity, you know, things which happen in most, most men and women when you reach a particular age where, you know, you gain a bit more weight, you lose a bit of muscle tone, and you have a drop in your sex hormones, that has a bigger impact on your tendons sure. than mechanical factors. I think that's a, you know, it's a combination, obviously, mechanical and hormonal, but the hormonal factors are more important in the 40 plus. On the other side, I do get, uh, you know, a few patients, for example, I do get like a 24-year-old female runner with a lateral hip pain. There, the mechanical factors are more important because, yes. for example, she started doing she started doing uphill running. Uh, she has a crossover gait, um, or uh, you know, there is some impairments and things like that. So, the age group makes a big effect on whether you think it's mechanical or uh, hormonal. Yeah, that's that's really well put. Thanks. Um, so, uh, the other next question I was going to ask was: Is at what point if you if you're presenting with a presented with a patient that has uh, lateral hip pain syndrome or greater trochanteric pain syndrome? At what point do you start making a decision about when to use shockwave um, as, as as we both agree on as an adjunct to what you're about to do with that patient? Do you jump straight in with it? Yeah. Do you try other things first? When do you use yeah. it in the timeline yeah. of your treatment strategy? Yeah, I think, I think if you look at the literature, it's very clear that it's not the first line of treatment. So most protocols will say that you need to try at least 12 weeks of uh, conservative management which should include a graded loading protocol before we think into adjuncts like, you know, shockwave, PRP, patches, or whatever, you know, is available. So uh, it's a bit different for me because I, I never ever seem to see people uh, in their acute states. Most more patients I see are um, second opinion or third opinion. So mm-hmm. an average person who comes to me, their symptoms have been at least six months to one year. They've done physio or osteo or somewhere else. They have not improved. So in, in that group, I don't really drag them for another three months uh, for rehab before shockwave. So in practice, what I do is a multimodal approach. So they come to me, for example, somebody comes to me, is eight months old, GPS. They have done two months of physio or uh, osteo somewhere. I'm going to start them multimodally. So obviously they'll get the rehab. Uh, they'll have the advice on load management and all that stuff which you do normally with tendon. But you, I, I will also start concurrently with uh, shockwave because I, what I don't want to do is uh, drag them for three months and then say, Let's start shockwave again. Sure. Uh, what I've changed, what I've changed recently is uh, I've been using, um, you know, uh, you get questionnaire for example, like Visa G, which is a specific, uh, you know, outcome tool for uh, hip. So it starts from zero to ten, zero to hundred. So you know, you could do it like an outcome tool when they come in, and then assess that in six weeks. So this is what I normally say: in six weeks, if you're not had any improvement, then we might start shockwave, which I think is reasonable in private practice most patients will not wait for three months. If they're not improving in four to six weeks, you know, you know, they will go somewhere else. You know? Yes. So I think most people, uh, most people are happy to try for a month or six weeks. So basically it kickstarts your healing by a little bit of pro inflammation. Uh, and then basically it facilitates uh, your engagement in rehabilitation. So it's an effective painkiller. It stimulates your healing mechanism, but it doesn't improve your tendon capacity and your function on its own. So I always make it clear that it's, uh, you know, the limitation of shockwave, you know. It's yeah. a fantastic tool, but the, the only thing which can improve tendon capacity is graded loading, you know. Yes. You can't just uh, use a passive technique and expect your tendon to change its capacity, you know. So, uh, so 
it's really important that we, you know, we de-threaten Shockley and say, it's, so sometimes I play it down and say, like, it's not going to fix it on its own, you know? Yes. But it's a great tool. We know that it works. It works by desensitization and also, uh, you know, uh, reduces the sensitivity. And uh, once the pain is reduced, then I can load you better and then your function will improve. So it's part of the, it's part of the pathway. It's never, I've never ever given in my last seven years, I've never ever given Shockwave as a standalone treatment which in my opinion is not good practice you know it should always multimodal yeah well said i think that was that was that was brilliantly put about the concept of capacity which i think when when people are dealing yeah. with tendons they 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 don't use that word enough because i think actually if we're going yeah. to use words like overload i think actually that's that's yeah. that, that, that that's accurate but it can be quite negative but yeah. using using a concept yes. of increasing capacity is something that this, i was the thought was it's yeah. got rather more of a positive influence on the patient to say well i can improve your capacity so therefore yeah, load yeah. will never breach yeah. capacity um so that's 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 really yeah. really well put um so i i we're talking about again this adjunctive issue um yeah. what you know in terms of how much data there is on on plantar fasciitis and achilles um yes what what is the data that exists now in terms of greater trochanteric pain syndrome? Is it is it catching up on those two key areas of plantar fasciitis and, and Achilles? Do you think? Yeah, yeah. So for example, the evidence is overloaded in plantar fasciitis. In my opinion, we don't need more trials. I think there's at least hundred to one hundred and fifty trials there. So it's well proven. You know, uh, uh, multi center trials, and you can say similar to Achilles. I think from a GTPS point of view, I think the first trial was in two thousand nine. I think with the with uh, Jan Rompe, which showed like comparing injection and then rehab and uh, GTPS, which showed good short-term and long-term up to, I think uh, it's 15 months or 24 months. So, which is pretty good for a clinical population, isn't it? Like, yes. Yeah, anything yeah. more than one year, I'm, I'm quite pleased. Uh, from the last count, from my reading, I think there's been six trials, four, four, on, um, four on radial and two on focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, the good news is none of them showed any adverse effects. Um, all of them showed a good outcome both in midterm and long term. And let's put that in perspective. So I get this constantly, you know, so bombarded by people when people say, oh, there's not much evidence. If you look at the evidence for exercise, for example, in GTPS, the only RCT which has been published only came out last year in the BJSM, the famous sleep trial. Yes. So if you argue, you can argue there's more evidence for shockwave than exercise from purely from a scientific point of view, you know. But I'm not saying like it's the first line of treatment. So uh, you know, people who dispute shockwave have not actually read up on the evidence, especially in the last five years. Mm. So, uh, uh, so six trials is not, you know, it's not huge, but you know, they're well controlled trials. You know, uh, some are RCTs. Uh, you know, there's no adverse effects, and all the patients which have been used in that in that RCTs in that six trials are patients who have failed conservative treatment the first line. So yes. nobody nobody's saying that we should stick in shockwave on the first on the first visit but if they're not improved then it's a logical thing to do yes i think that's quite right and i, I remember looking at that leap trial i think i think mm-hmm. i'm right in saying that it, it was something like about it was one or two sessions per week for about 18 weeks yes it was and a total 14 14 sessions and so this is the thing you know people especially you know you might you work in the you know private sector and people say people jump on the exercise van wagon and say exercise is better yes exercise is better but the virtual trial used 14 sessions, one for, Yes. And how many uh, insurance companies or NHS places offer 14 sessions? Yes. It doesn't happen, you know. So if you want to have good rehab, you need to put in the work. But sadly, because of financial reasons or, 
because of uh, you know certain limitations people don't get that for uh, you know 14 session i'm just going off the tangent you know just still i think which is relevant here is you know i was recently teaching in denmark and uh, they see, and i was talking to this guy you know they were they were getting amazing return to play following acls so i was asking how many sessions do you see them after acl and he said an average of 40 to 60 sessions <laughs> what they do 40 to 60 40 to 60 in one year you know and uh, if you're giving 40 to 60 in one year i mean obviously it's simply amazing isn't it you know? yes so yeah, yeah. so if you want to think exercise is good at best uh, please do give them enough sessions and don't expect because we know the exercise takes time you know you're not going to get an improvement in two sessions or three sessions you know? yeah yeah sure yeah Okay, so we're, if we can just um, change tack a little bit, so we'll, I, you know, I, I teach alongside with you, and and, yeah. and we always, I certainly have found that you get people do like to sort of get into the absolute detail. They want to be given a sort of formulaic, mm. you know, is it three sessions of what bar of what frequency mm. and so forth. So mm. what after seven years of you using it, what mm. do you have any? strategies that you use to decide on particularly with session number mm, so i know that yeah. some people are out there saying that they just block book six sessions for everything yeah. i mm. personally don't yeah. um but what do how do you construct your treatment yeah. sessions i think i think uh, i think you must have gone through the same journey i've tried the whole combination so when i first started actually when i first was exposed to shockwave which was in in oxalis in greenwich we had a policy we only gave three sessions you know mm-hmm. so that's that's what i was told you know you just do what you're told by your boss so i just stuck to that what i found was it seems to work really well about 60% of patients like for example the achilles and the plantar fasciitis what i found was it doesn't seem to really make people take off the edge in especially hip pathologies and patellar so it seems like those areas needed a bit more so so what i did was uh, what you know what i've changed in the last one or two years is um the two factors i feel are really important in the number of session the first fact is chronicity so you got two patients in a clinic one had had gtps for 5 uh, months and another had gtps for 4 uh, years obviously they're going to be different isn't it they're not both going to respond and that what i use is if your pathology has been more than one year i say to my patient it's more likely that you'll end up needing at least four to five session that three might not be enough mm-hmm. so that sort of uh, i find uh, you know anecdotally uh, the more chronic they are you need that more stimulus to get in there to create that sort of uh, you know healing response and the inflammatory response uh, that's one element the second element i find is the hip tendons you know you know because you get a lot of dissipation of the energy by the adiposity and the depth of the region so i find like with my the hip conditions i give predominantly is the three hips i give is uh, lateral hip uh, i'm a big fan of uh, using on my adductors i use that a lot with my male patients with adductors and the third condition i use is the proximal hamstring which we use in middle age runners and you know very common in the runners mm-hmm. the the one i have sort of now gone into is we know that there's a minimum of 3 that's the minimum to get that effect you sort of reach the ceiling effect after 5 or 6 i don't really see much point after that so what i tend to do in my clinic is the hip tendons you know those three tendons I've sort of uh, I found this worked for me in the last two years. I offer them a package of five sessions. That's what I do. Right. Uh, it's it's always five for those three areas. Could be because it's deeper. It's a bit more. You get a lot of wastage with the radial with that. You know, it's not superficial like the Achilles or the plantar fasciitis. So I find that three gets them a bit better, but five seems to uh, make them you Ex- know really complete the complete the journey really well. 
Sorry, I just missed the first one of the tendons that you mentioned around the hip. You got we got uh, the GTPS and we got high hamstring. What was the other condition? And then, uh, the adductors. Oh, you know, do the, you right? Okay. Yeah, the adductors. It's one of my favorites. Uh, and if you look from see, this is the thing. You know, if you look at the evidence, there is only one trial, uh, as far as I know, which. Uh, so I was, I think that was at one of the sports. Uh, I think it was in, um, I think in Holland or France, one of the places where I was uh, dealing with one of. Uh, a semi-professional clubs uh, physios and he said to me they are having good success with adductors and uh, osteitis pubis so I thought why not you know because it's a, it's the same tendon you know it's a yeah. like any weight bearing tendon and you're using uh, you're using radial for that now yes yeah for I'm all of those for the, yeah all of those for the radial what I tend to use as well is around the bone area I tend to use the ceramic you know the soft focus sure because it's very it's very sore if you go directly with your normal uh, normal head so I tend to use the you know the soft focus around it and uh, uh, and uh, you know, I picked up from other clinicians. I tend to always do a little bit of myofascial work with my D20. You know, sort of uh, work on. So it's so for me, it's a combination of three things: work on the muscles, work on the you know bone interface, and then the tendon. It's a one unit. I'm not sure. I'm not just. I'm just not treating the tendon in isolation. It's a combination okay. treatment. Fine. And I, yeah. on on because on this podcast, I, I say at the start that we're not we're yeah. not trying to be denominational and religious about what machines. Yeah. So for people listening, yeah. that. That you mentioned ceramic, that's a, a Stortz specific um, yes. head that we use that is just yeah. basically dissipating energy much better. Yeah. Um, and the D20 is a sort of massage type device that comes with it, isn't it? I'm not yeah. sure whether other machines, or what well, I should say at this point, there are other machines on the market, but that's 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 pertinent to the machine that you have. Um, yeah. So, do you have you found anecdotally any particular group or any particular in, individuals that respond particularly well to shockwave that you would be like, yep, yeah, that's the that's the condition I want to see. That's yeah. the age. That's the you know sex and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I think you know you learn more from failures than from success, in my opinion. So I can tell you the ones which I find don't respond, but then then I can tell you which respond well. The ones I find really difficult. With shockwave are the patients who had multiple steroid injections. Right. You know, somebody somebody comes to me lateral hip and they said they had four injections in the last two years. Uh, I'm going to be very honest with them and say we know that steroids causes cell death, uh, reduces you know it causes weakens your tendons, cell degenerate. You know we you know all, we know all the negative effects on uh, steroids on tendons, especially multiple injections. You know. Yes. We're talking we're talking about people like my my nightmare patient is. Like a tennis elbow patient who had six injections, you know, yeah. that, that's you know, you know, it's not you know, it's not going to be as effective. So those patients, I'll tell them like, obviously, I'm going to try uh, try shockwave, but I'm going to only give you 50-50, you know, or not even 50-40 percent or something like that. So I'm very honest uh, up from saying like it might not be as successful because you know once you have been messed around with multiple steroids, it doesn't seem uh, that's my you know experience. They don't seem to do well. That's one group. The second group, which I think, which comes from a bit of literature from your, uh, you know, plantar fasciitis, thesis, people with uncontrolled diabetic, you know, where they have the sugars is all over the place. Because yeah. we know that's very important for healing. So an uncontrolled diabetic patient or, you know, very large BMI, it's all this, they, they, they don't, they're very, you know, they get flare ups, they don't respond. And the last group I find who don't respond really well is people with an underlying um, uh, rheumatological condition, you know, like psoriasis, uh, you know, rheumatic arthritis or ankylosing spondylitis. They don't seem to respond the same way with an, like somebody with a mechanical component, you know. So, uh, so they seem to take longer and they uh, they don't tolerate heavy doses. So those three groups, 
I do try on those three groups, but they're not my most successful of groups. Well, now, sure. Talking about people, yeah. And yeah. I'm talking about people who do well are, again, there are two, three types of uh, groups I find in GDPs. First one is patients whose symptoms are less than one year. Uh, because, you know, if you have symptoms for four years, you're going to get a lot of uh, other associated factors, you know. Uh, central sensitization, you know, uh, uh, associated kinetic deficits, you know, pain response, everything gets altered, isn't it? The whole nervous system yes. it becomes uh, becomes a bit mashed up when you have pain for uh, four years. So I find the more chronic you are, um, you know, you don't do so well as somebody whose symptom is less than one year. That's that one group. The second group I find is, uh, you know, who are um, generally having a good function before, you know, for somebody who comes limping in, they're having severe night pain. Um, I, I tend to try to discourage them from shockwave till I build their capacity first. Sometimes I feel you need to be strong enough to ha- take the shockwave first. You know, mm-hmm. if you come very, if you come very sore, very weak, uh, very painful, they don't, they can't take the dosage. And if you don't give them dosage, nothing works, isn't it? Yeah, so, sure. So uh, I tend to avoid shockwave in very acute patients and who are really uh, deconditioned. So sometimes I'll say. I think you need one month of uh, rehab just for the shockwave. You know, you need a bit of prehab. Yes. So okay. you need a little bit of you need a little bit of strengthening. So, for example, I might do as like for example, like a GTPS. I might expect them to do at least like a ten bridges and at least twenty to thirty seconds single leg stand. You know, simple t- simple test I use. Sure. You know? uh, if they can't do that, then you know I would say let's get you strong a little bit first, and then we can uh, because it's a painful stimulus. And I don't want to give it uh, till I think you're ready. So that's what I've changed. Before I used to rush into that. Now I sort of build them up to that. It's like a prehab before surgery, you know. Yeah. Like we know we we got evidence from ACL and other hip surgeries that that four to six weeks of prehab improves your outcome. Yeah. And I use the same. I use the same principle with my shockwave as well. So four to six weeks of prehab. And do you, do you use that? Do you use that across all all the tendinopathies, or is that particularly yes, for the yeah, hip? Yeah. You know, all the tendons, uh, especially weight bearing tendons. Uh, um, you know. I would say ninety percent of my treatment is lower limb, so I can't really comment on upper limb. But uh, sure. for my for my uh, patellar tendon, you know, uh, lateral hip, Achilles, I sort of build them to a minimum capacity where I feel they can take that uh, dosage because it's it's purely it's a pure physics thing. For example, if you come with a lot of pain and you can only take two point two, for example, you know, yeah, and uh, that's two point two bar, isn't it? Yeah, bar two point two bar. And if you build your, if I build them up and you can take three bars, so I put more energy in you, isn't it? Yeah. In a, in a, so, and you're going to get better response because the cellular response will be higher. So, there's a bit of selfishness in me there to get them ready so that they can take maximum dosage, which we know is the biggest predictor of improvement, isn't it? You know. So, if you if you're too sore, you can't handle it. You know. So, you need to be strong enough. I think that's one of the mistakes I see is it's not about uh, shockwave is not the right. It's all about the right timing of shockwave. You should give them anything is the right time where they can take it at that appropriate dosage. Yeah, that's nicely put. That's food for thought. I hadn't thought about that myself actually. Because I, I mean, I quite, I, I like you said at the, so, mm. at the start. I, I think it's got a particularly with I found with GTPS, it's got a really nice mm. uh, pain relieving effect. And 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 a lot of people with that condition are sleep affected because of the pain. And I think that actually, from my yeah. point of view, if one of the things that you can change is their pain and sleep better. From metabolic yeah. point of view and hormonal point of view, that gets them going really well. Yeah. Yeah. So the things, uh, simple things, you know, I might, you know, I could share here is, you know, you don't have to make it complex with patients. Is somebody is having, you know, severe night pain, point blankly, I won't give shockwave because we know without sleep nothing happens, you know, you recover, yeah, yeah, nothing in your MSK. So somebody is waking up three times at night, 
because of severe pain, I say to them, you know, shockwave is not going to fix that, you know, so let's get the sleep sorted first, you know, yeah. uh, you know, get that sorted. Somebody's limping, they can't even walk five minutes, uh, you know, get them a little bit, at least walk them 10 minutes. So the simple things I look for is uh, night pain, can they walk for at least 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes? Can they do at least 20 to 30 seconds of a single leg stand? Just even holding a chair, can they do that? Can they do at least 10 bridges without much of pain? If they can do that, then I think they're ready. If they can't even do those basic ADLs, uh, then you should be focusing on a non-shockwave treatment option rather than just giving them another painful stimulus. Okay, fine. And what do you do for, in terms of impulses or shocks shocks per session? Have you come, have you come round to an idea on that? Yeah, so impulses, as we know, you hit the ceiling point after 2,500 to 3,000. So the maximum impulses I would give them is, yeah, I never ever exceed 2,500. I might give them a 500 as a warm-up dose, uh, especially on the first session with a high frequency. So I might give them like a 13 to 15 hertz, uh, because that's more like, you know, desensitizing the area so that they can take the main dosage. Mm -hmm. So it could be, so the main the main um, treatment might be 2 to 2.5k and the uh, and then the you know uh, warm up dose might be five hundred. Now, if, if I am working on the, a lot of them will have some myofascial pain and bit of tightness there. So I might give another thousand working around the uh, myofascial area. Uh, you know, sort of uh, working, especially the chronic cases. So in total, you're looking around four thousand. You know, in yeah. the, you know the whole the whole thing. And uh, so I look at it, the complete package really. You know, uh, sure. rather than just uh, focusing on the insertion of the ten because. It's one unit, isn't it? Yeah, and I, if we can just go, because I just speaking to you before, I know that you bought the, the focused uh, device. Now, have right. you how have you yeah. have you started building that into your repertoire of GTPS and high hamstring and so forth? And how how are you getting yeah. on with it so far? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the focus is a fantastic. Uh, it was I'm lucky to get access through you know the Life Plus clinic. So the what I find is um, uh, we got good evidence that it's. Um, um, superior to uh, you know radial in plantar fasciitis, we have seen few trials, but we still not seen that from a tendon point of view because most outcomes they use for tendon is like three months and six months, so it sort of evens out. But having said that, it's, I think it still has a very good role. One, I think, is especially the beauty of focus is you could use it in people who is a little bit more more painful than in a radial. So somebody who's who has a bit of high pain levels, a bit irritable, they seem to tolerate focus better than radial. So, uh, so that is a good option. And also another advantage is the depth. We know that focus, you know, you can go all the way to eight to 12 centimeters, especially with somebody with a large BMI, that's a bit more useful. So the thing, you know, you know, when I, when I be to, you know, the store set quarters, like in Zurich and other places, I think the way forward is a combination, you know, you hit the focus on the most painful effective area, and then the surrounding area you work on the radial. So, uh, you know, from anecdotal, the combination seems to do well, but we don't have any hard data to prove that, you know, but I'm sure the evidence will come in time. So I think, uh, you know, it's not, I don't think it's like, is it radial or focus? I think they sort of complement each other. So it's it's great to have the access to both the devices if possible. Sure. Okay, great. Um, I think that, um, I think the only thing I'm going to leave you with is, is that I've, I've been to one of your teaching courses as well. And yeah. it's one thing that I, I try and put across as much as possible on this podcast is that you know i think the key message when we start talking about tendons amongst ourselves is that um we we're concerned i think that um it's becoming a, a one a one-stop shop for fixing tendons without any of the other stuff but the people that that, yeah. that, that know a lot more about tendons than i do including yourself will, will definitely say it's part of it's an adjunct 
to a, a good supportive treatment of that patient and, and that's what I just wanted to yeah. get across today because I know you're a great believer in that yeah so I think for example like you know you know it's some yeah, all good clinicians give multimodal treatment you know that's a problem with research because they look at one treatment in isolation that's how good research is but in reality we're going to give multiple things so if you get somebody with a GTP it's supposed to like a middle-aged runner you know male or female so you're going to look at you know uh you know, first with the load management, are they overtraining, you know, look at that aspect, you know, psychology aspect, sleep, recovery, all that stuff. And then you're going to start them on a, a simple graded loading program. Uh, not everybody needs to start with isometric. You need to find a suitable starting point. And then you might look into any associated deficits. For example, one of the things I see missed in GTPS is, uh, we know from the research, a lot of them have weakness in their uh, same side, quads and calf. So a lot of them have associated deficits, you know. So it's just not the hip abductors which are weak. A lot of them have quad weakness, they have calf weakness on the same side. So we're going to address the whole kinetic chain, you know. Mm -hmm. And then we might look and then we might look into the gait analysis, whether they're having any issues with that and return them back to plyometrics. And sometimes I might even get help from my podiatric colleagues in other colleagues when I feel there's other things associated. So it's sort of a, a collaborative a multimodal approach uh, rather than, uh, you know, saying shockwave. And the shockwave really gets you into that sort of uh, uh, facilitates. I think it's a great facilitator in rehab. That's how I, I, I explained to my patient. It, facilita it facilitates you into engage in rehabilitation by reducing in pain, but it really doesn't change anything inter intrinsically. You know, what changes is what you put in, you know? If you, if you don't make that changes from your lifestyle and with your exercises, uh, your tendons will not be different, you know? Uh, so a, passive, a pure passive approach is not the way forward for a, a multifaceted condition like tendinopathy. I think, I think, there would be there would be no better time to finish this podcast because that was brilliantly put, Ben. Um, so I am going to wrap this up and say thank you very much. Uh, and um, I'm pretty sure that if we continue doing po podcasts, we're going to get you back on to discuss something else later on. But um, thanks for your time today, Ben. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah, th yeah. Thanks, James, for inviting me.